Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Daniels on the Blake Radio Network, Rainbow Soul. And tonight's topic is Diabetes Revisited. We talked about diabetes uh, actually two years ago. Called the Diabetes Debacle. Well, I thought it was bad then, but guess what? It has gotten a lot, lot, lot worse. And the uh, shocking uh, information, of course, is that 25% of all diabetic deaths may actually be caused by, get this, the medical therapy the person receives. And furthermore, the medical care, which is lethal to this person, is consistent with, you guessed it, standard of care. It's the care that every competent doctor is obligated to provide and every savvy consumer is honored to receive. So this is <laughs> seriously, uh, you know, yeah, an issue. Now, first of all, let's start at the beginning, the very beginning. We're going to say, we need to talk about what is diabetes. So let's just talk about what it means to an individual. So to the individual patient, diabetes means you have an elevated blood sugar and you have to uh, pick your finger lots of times, uh, take shots and pills, and watch what you eat, and maybe uh, you don't feel so well. And you can probably pass out from time to time because your blood sugar is uh, too high or too low. That's the the patient's perspective. What's the medical perspective? Well, medically speaking, diabetes is an isolated blood sugar uh, over, I believe, 250. If a person's blood sugar is higher than that, even on a spot check, then boom, they got diabetes. 
or it's a fasting blood sugar um, in excess of uh, 125. Or it's a glucose tolerance test, which is a person gets a blood sugar challenge, and then the blood sugar is measured hourly over a period of several hours, during which the person is not allowed to eat. So these are various criteria. And lately, there's a new test called hemoglobin A1C. Now, the way this works is everybody has blood cells, and those blood cells have inside of them hemoglobin. The hemoglobin can become attached to blood sugar molecules. Now, um, whether or not this happens is proportional to the amount of blood sugar circulating. So because you need some sugar to stay alive, obviously, some sugar comes into contact with the molecule and you've got this uh, hemoglobin attached to glucose, and this is called hemoglobin A1C because of the location at which the glucose is attached. All right. Now, the percentage of hemoglobin A1C, uh, that's, if, you, if you take a bunch of normal people who do not have uh, diabetes, they will have uh, hemoglobin A1C, that's a uh, detectable level. And this normal range is part of the problem. So people who have a hemoglobin A1C who are healthy, not diabetic, um, their range is between 4.5 to 6%. So this is healthy, as in this is a non-diabetic hemoglobin A1C range. And the hemoglobin A1C measures kind of the average blood sugar for the prior 90 days because red blood cells only last 90 days. Then the body automatically destroys them and makes new red blood cells. So if you have an hemoglobin A1C, then it's a rough estimate of what the blood sugar has been the prior 90 days. Okay, so if a person is not diabetic, is healthy, taking no medication, a normal hemoglobin A1C is between 4.5 and 6. Now, there's uh, another issue. What about someone who's been diagnosed with diabetes? What about their hemoglobin A1C? What's a normal hemoglobin A1C for them? Well, most doctors will tell you that when they treat their diabetics, they try to get the hemoglobin A1C in the normal range. That's between 4.5 to 6. More specifically, their target range is 6, so the upper range of the normal level. And that sounds pretty good. I mean, those of you who are listening are thinking, well, that sounds reasonable, right? You know, if you're treating someone who's sick and they have numbers indicating disease, then, of course, treating the disease properly for optimal outcome would mean making those laboratory tests normal. This logic does sound, sounds pretty logical. But actually, it may be logical, but it's totally inaccurate. It turns out that for the human body, when you have an abnormal laboratory value, a lot of times that abnormal laboratory value 
is in response to uh, difficult conditions that the body is coping with. And when you normalize those abnormal laboratory values without normalizing the external condition the body is trying to adapt to, what you do is you destroy the body's coping mechanism. So that's like taking a three-legged stool and kicking out one leg, basically. So in diabetes, it appears this is even more so the case in spades. And so what this means then is when the medical doctors attempt to normalize the person's blood sugar without normalizing the reason why the blood sugar is high, you actually have an increase in the death rate. Now, this is my interpretation, my interpretation. We'll get to the research, the medical... Uh, medically credible sources and what they say. So what they're recommending then is that a hemoglobin A1C of 6.5 is now being recommended as a diagnostic criteria for diabetes. So if a person has a hemoglobin A1C, it's 6.5 or more, boom, by golly, they've got diabetes. And so let's just take a look at the, um, the rationale. First of all, there's a kind of a rough correlation between hemoglobin A1C and serum blood sugar levels. All right. So at 6.5, more or less, the blood sugar level corresponding to a hemoglobin A1C of 6.5 is 140. And so the, the rationale, and this is that, uh, you know, PubMed, uh, this is um, published medical journals, this is maintained by the National Institutes of Health, and this is uh, this was published in 2010, hemoglobin A1C for diagnosis of diabetes, practical consideration. And so here they say the International Expert Committee recommends the diagnosis of diabetes be made if hemoglobin A1C level is greater than 6.5 and confirmed with a repeat hemoglobin A1C level. I imagine that would be 90 days later because then the blood cells have been replaced and you know if this is a persistent situation. The committee recommends against mixing different methods of diagnose diabetes because the tests are not completely concordant. In other words, different tests yield different results. So the doctor needs to, he can't check a hemoglobin A1C one time and then check a fasting blood sugar at other time because um, it might not work. The, the results may be unreliable. This is, this is amazing. So if you, you're diagnosing a condition as serious as diabetes, and now what you're saying then is two different methods of testing, actually three, can give different results, and therefore pick one test and stick with that test. So again, we have a situation where literally your insurance and what tests they decide to pay for can determine whether or not you have diabetes. Okay. 
So using different tasks they say can lead to confusion. So already red flags. So fasting plasma glucose, they're saying two hours um, is one method, method of measure. Two hours after eating is another method. And oral glucose tolerance test is another method. And hemoglobin A1C is yet another. Okay. And um, what they're saying is factors that may not be clinically evident can impact the hemoglobin A1C test results and may systematically raise or lower the value relative to the true level of glycemia, that means sugar in the blood. For this reason, a hemoglobin A1C should be used in combination with plasma glucose determination for the diagnosis of diabetes. In other words, we have a very expensive test here, a relatively more expensive test, and we should use it in addition to already existing tests. We should not have it replace any test. This is why your doctor has to constantly do all kinds of tests. Standard care is to make sure everyone who makes a test for the disease gets paid. If the hemoglobin A1C test does not agree with the clinical picture, or equivocal plasma glucose testing should be performed. In other words, if, you, if the hemoglobin A1C um, doesn't make sense to the doctor, or doesn't agree with blood sugar tests, then they should go to another test. And so a blood sugar diagnostic cutoff point of hemoglobin A1C 6.5% misses a substantial number of people with type 2 diabetes, including some with fasting elevated blood sugar. We know this because 6.5 corresponds to blood sugar 140. Therefore, since 125 is the cutoff for diabetes, you're going to miss everyone between 125 and 140. Okay, gotcha. And so the question is, when you diagnose somebody with diabetes, what do you do? What do you do? Well, the answer is you treat them, of course. Naturally, treat them. Treat them with, uh, with medication. And this is a thoroughly reasonable thing to do, especially considering, well, you are going to see a doctor. Okay, so hold this in your mind. Diabetes is diagnosed at a blood sugar, at a hemoglobin A1C of 6.5. However, this scholarly article, the consensus of the International Expert Committee, recommends that the hemoglobin A1C might not catch all of your diabetics at the 6.5 cutoff. Therefore, more testing is necessary to make sure you diagnose everybody with diabetes. All right, and this is written by just, uh, by the way, uh, Drs. Herman and F-A-J-A-N-S. Okay. I am totally confident that, uh, you know, these are great doctors, they're certified and everything. So, Let's go on to another piece of information. And this is a similar source. And what this source says, this is Medicaid, this is the doctor's piece. So if you're going to see a licensed doctor, they get this on their, their, their daily inbox. I mean, it's flooded with emails. I just can't even tell you all the emails I get um, from the, the doctor feeds. Your, your doctor is well informed on this. So if he's reading his inbox, let me tell you, he's getting the information. Now, unlike me, since he's busy seeing, seeing patients all day, he might not have time to read all this stuff. So that's okay. You can still feel free to, to 
share it with them. So get this. A drop in hemoglobin A1C was associated with lower mortality. It's like, wow, this is good news. I'm so excited. I'm so excited for effective therapy, finally, for diabetes. But what did they tell me? Lower mortality among people with type 2 diabetes who had initial hemoglobin A1C values over 8%. So if your hemoglobin A1C value at the time of diagnosis was more than 8%, not equal to 8%, but more than 8%. But with a higher death rate for those who started out with the hemoglobin A1C at 8% or lower. Okay, so we have one study, one, you know, we have the edict from the national expert saying, well, person's got a disease, serious disease, diabetes, hemoglobin A1C 6.5, got to start therapy. Okay, and now we have a study showing that if you provide therapy to anyone prior to a hemoglobin A1C of 8, then you are increasing their death rate, increasing their death rate. In other words, you are hastening their demise. This would be like you taking a knife and stabbing someone eh, 64 times or so, and then they would die. One could say that you hastened their death. In other words, you killed them. So we're saying here that it is a higher mortality for people who receive therapy for their diabetes and whose hemoglobin A1C at diagnosis was eight or less. That's a heck of a lot of people. I dare say that's more than half of all diabetics. That's a lot of people. I want you to know, I went online and I checked and I looked and looked and I could not find the percent of diabetics who were diagnosed with the hemoglobin A1C above eight or below eight. I can tell you this, any doctor who fails to diagnose diabetes prior to a hemoglobin A1C of eight would consider himself to be negligent. He would take it as a, a, a personal deficiency. And just in case, you know, to bring this home even more, once a person is diagnosed with diabetes, you have doctors telling them to lower their hemoglobin A1C to 6. Okay, so these are the, these are the easy numbers. We're going to get into some pretty heavy numbers as we calculate. But hold that in your mind. Normal, 4.5 to 6. Diagnosis, 6.5. Increased mortality at anything from 8.5 or less. So if you're out there, you're diabetic, at the time of diagnosis, your hemoglobin A1C was 8 or less, then by accepting therapy for your diabetes, you are increasing your chances of death from any and all causes by 25%. Okay, very good. Let me make sure that you're with me there. Okay. I just want to say, by the way, uh, our call-in number is 914-338-0695, and I'll be taking uh, questions in about 20 minutes. And also, we have a chat going, as always. We always have a chat going. 
And our chat is at Chatango, E.R. Jennifer Daniels. Let me see if I can get into that site and uh, give you a little more direction on this. Aha, there we are, chat room. Here it is. Healing with drdaniels.chatango.com. So it's healing with drdaniels.chatango.com. Okay. And we've got a lively, lively group of chatters. Uh, they've got all kinds of uh, <laughs> all kinds of comments. All right. So, so we've got then the killing fields which diabetics are definitely murdered, no doubt about it, is between hemoglobin A1C, anything under 8. And I have had many diabetics say, Dr. Daniels, I've worked very hard, and my hemoglobin A1C is 6. And I'm like, ooh, I'm sorry to hear that. Okay, so results from the population-based perspective observational study were published online in the British Medical Journal. I want you to know, the British Medical Journal is the British version of the New England Journal of Medicine. This is the journal. And it's a six-year follow-up period. This is not any fluke fly-by-night result. Six-year follow-up period. Went to higher mortality among those with hemoglobin A1C 8 or lower. And they have a theory. Um... But they were that hemoglobin A1C might be the real culprit, not the absolute hemoglobin A1C. And this is a very nice theory because what does it mean? It means now you have to get hemoglobin A1Cs done as often as you check your blood finger sticks, right? Those guys saying the variability is what kills people, not the actual height of the hemoglobin A1C. Nevertheless, we were surprised by the fact that the variation did not seem to matter for people with values above 8. Okay. And so there's, there's all kinds of uh, theories about this. The reason that hemoglobin A1Cs over 8 were not associated with higher death rates is unclear. Well, duh. If the hemoglobin A1C is lower than 8 and you have a very high, wide swing, the variability, way up, way down, way up, way down, the person is having hypoglycemic episodes and they're fainting, passing out, and even dying and going into a coma because their blood sugar is going low. So obviously, for people with hemoglobin A1Cs less, 8 or less, of course, the more variation in the hemoglobin A1C, the greater your death rate. Over 8, that high variability has to go very, very low. It's much further reach to get down to four or three or the level which causes death. So I don't know who they had analyzing these data, but it's, uh, you know, they're not, just, they're not being sensible here. I don't know why. And then I have another, uh, perhaps the persistently high glycemic load dwarfs the harm of high variability. We hope that future research will address this and clarify the pathway. Well, again, if people die at a blood sugar of 3 and you're starting off with a blood sugar of 250, 
a variation of 100 points up or down is not going to kill the person. But if the person starting with a blood sugar of 140, or better yet, uh, yeah, 140, you know, for an A1C 6.5, you lower that by 100 points, boom, you're down to a blood sugar of 40, and lower it by another 40 points, you kill them. So you take a guy with blood sugar 250, lower it by 140 points, he's still going to be alive. Take a guy with a blood sugar of 140, lower it by 140 points, and you've killed him. And this is why the variability at a higher blood sugar level is not nearly as deadly as variability when you're in the lower range. Okay, but the authors here could not figure that out, and why, I do not know. And so we hope in the long term our study combination with future researchers can lead to a targeted prevention of complications by more individualized treatment, presumably by aiming at reducing hemoglobin A1C variability for people with hemoglobin A1C below 8. Well, a targeted prevention of complications. This isn't complications. This is doctor-induced homicide. Not homicide, excuse me, doctors have a special license to kill, so it's just doctor-induced killing. We have to make that distinction. Murder is when someone is killed by an individual who does not have authorization or special permission from the government by law. So doctors do have that permission, so doctors by law are not able to commit murder in the context of the medical practice. All right, so this is all pretty vague. Oh, here we are. This is, this is the This is the clincher here. For those whose index hemoglobin A1C values of 6.6 to 7.4, the hazard ratio was 1.3. Whoa. That means they were 30% more likely to die than somebody who uh, was not treated. So, when I uh, saw that, I said, man, it can't be. It must be a mistake. They must have, uh, you know, misinterpreted the findings, of course. So this is a Danish study, and this is what the Danish study says. It says variability between 0 and 0.5 hemoglobin A1C, which is not much variability, was not associated with mortality, but for index, that means uh, starting, hemoglobin A1C less than 8, a variability above 0.5, was associated with increased death. And here they give the range. The, um, the increased mortality was 1.3 to 1.5. In other words, it was as high as 50% increase in death rate. 50% increase in death rate. So for index hemoglobin A1C is greater than 8, mortality increased. So less than 8 mortality increase. Stable when the hemoglobin A1C rose to greater than 8. So greater than 8, no increase in the death rate. And hemoglobin A1C was associated, or changing hemoglobin A1C is associated with mortality, the lowest mortality being for the greatest decline. Okay. So once you got a um, hemoglobin A1C of 8 or more, then when the hemoglobin A1C declined by 1 point, the person's um, death rate did not increase. In fact, it decreased 
by two percentage points. Two percent decrease in mortality. Now, what I did was I took it upon myself to dig through this document and find out exactly what the numbers were. So let's let's retrieve these these numbers and go through the calculations. All right. Now, the important thing you need to know is survival in six years is is 90%. So this is improved by 10%. It raises it to a respectable 99% if survival is improved. But this is not what they're measuring. They're measuring mortality, which is 10%. And when this improves by 10%, that's a 1% increase. It's important to get this. So I say mortality is reduced, and people hear or understand that survival increases. Maybe, but not by the same percentage. So saying 2% very differently, its numbers are different. So your average person in the United States just walks out their door every day, and even if they're healthy, they've got a 0.8% chance of dying. So with a 0.8% chance of dying for a healthy person over a six-year period, we would expect 4.8% to be dead in six years if they start out healthy. <laughs> so then we have, um, what about diabetics? Well, for this, we have to go to the Diabetes Association website. And what they say is diabetics are 1.66% times as likely to die as other people. So we take this 4.8%, multiply it by 1.66%, and we have a death rate you can expect for a diabetic. And we multiply that by 1.3%. So we now have an individual who's diabetic, and they have a 10.36% chance of death over a six-year period with treatment. Uh, if their starting hemoglobin A1C was less than 8, which is the case for most diabetics, because um, we have early detection, we have a glucose meter in every um, every home these days. Okay, so the no treatment death rate is, is the 4.8, which is the regular people, times 1.66. So no treatment, we expect a death rate of 7.25% over six-year period. Now, the treatment death rate is 10.36. So that's a hefty death difference. Let's just say people actually got better with treatment. Because remember, people over over hemoglobin more than eight, they um, they experience a two percent reduction in the death rate. Okay, so the death rate. We figured a 7.17 over six years. And 0.2% of that is, is uh, not a hell of a lot, not even a fraction of 1%. And so diabetics, I'm sorry, diabetics untreated 7.25% death rate. 
if you treat the diabetic, you lower it 7.25% down to 7.17%. In other words, you don't even gain 1% survival over a six-year period. And of total diabetics dying, of the total population of diabetics over a six-year period, 3.1% die because of this therapy. And over the full six-year period, 10.36% uh, die. Again, these are the ones with the lower hemoglobin A1C. But with programs of early diagnosis, we can, we can easily deduce that the vast majority of diabetics are diagnosed at that lower rate. So a 1% difference in survival between the two groups. In other words, the eight and above group over a six-year period had 10% survival increase, but 10% of what? Well, at best, 10% of 10%. That's a 1% survival improvement over a six-year period due to diabetic medical therapy. 1% divided by six is 0.0016 per year, or 1.6 people in a thousand benefit each year. So 625 person years of diabetic therapy and a starting hemoglobin A1C more than eight is needed to experience life-saving benefit from diabetic therapy. So who has 625 years to wait? Now this is by, again, this is the, the admission of the people doing this study. And that's just the people who benefit. People who benefit from diabetic therapy, it takes at least 625 person years of use. So if you're a diabetic and you personally plan to submit to diabetic therapy for 625 years, that's how long it would take for you to experience the life-saving benefit of living even a minute longer. Okay, so let's put this in dollars and dollars and cents. People with diagnosed diabetes incur, on average, medical expenditures of about $13,700 per year, of which $7,900 is attributed to diabetes. Now, truthfully, if they were not diabetic, they probably really wouldn't have any of that, but that's another story. And so, incur average medical expenditures. This is not average medical expenditures. This is Revenue to the industry, this is profit. Every last penny of this ends up in somebody's paycheck. Somebody's paycheck. And so, you know, I said, well, the hospital only has a profit of 5% per year. Okay. So they pay the executive director. They pay the chief financial officer. They pay the information services director. They pay all the consultants. Pay, 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 pay. This $13,700 a year gets dispersed to real, live human beings who spend the money. And I think that's what we need to understand. This $13,700 per year is not an expenditure, it's not a cost, it is serious revenue for individuals and revenue that they are counting on. Okay, so people with diagnosed diabetes on average have medical expenditures 2.3 times higher than what expenditures would be in the absence of diabetes. And this is by the diabetes.org advocacy slash news event slash cost of diabetes and a few other things. Okay. So what about getting one person to live one year longer? Well, to get one person to live one year longer, uh, we'd have to treat 7,518 people. 
at a cost of, I'm using a lower figure, $7,900 per diabetic and diabetic-related cost. This is $59.1 million in revenue to help one diabetic live one minute longer, actually one year longer. $59.1 million. You know, if I was a diabetic, I would just say, you know what, guys, stop, stop right now, just hand me the money. Hand me the money, I will keep my diabetes. Just hand me the money. But this is like helping the poor. You can never, under any circumstances, give the money to the poor person. It has to go to everybody else. Okay, so let's look at a maximum cost scenario using their figures. So 7,518 is the number needed to treat times $13,700 cost of medical care for a year, and we're up to $103 million per diabetic who lives one year longer. Now, like I said, if I were a diabetic, I would skip the care just so my heirs could have the money. Skip the torture, needles, and surgery. Remember all the amputations, x-rays, finger sticks, doctor visits? Only help one in 7,518 to live even one year longer over a period of six years. So, if you're not feeling lucky, just refuse the therapy for diabetes and get the money. That's what I say. And so this is, this is, this is absolutely shocking. Can you imagine if they made cars in Detroit or China or Tokyo or wherever they make cars and only uh, one car in 7,518 would run? What would that mean? That is the level of uh, of ineffectiveness we are tolerating in the area of diabetes. And so to uh, put this in perspective, if you look at uh, 2010, there were 69,000 death certificates where diabetes is listed as the underlying cause of death. So easily uh, 17,000 people were murdered in 2010, not murdered, excuse me, they were killed by their medical therapy. And the number of diabetics have grown since then, but we don't have uh, more uh, recent figures. But this is, uh, this is shocking, but it goes further. So, of course, everyone's concerned about diabetes. There's a lot of research being done on diabetes. And what really prompted this show was this latest research study. And this was done uh, by the people who manufacture uh, diabetes drugs. And they asked the question, and the question they asked was, can we trust diabetics to manage their own health care? Uh, this protocol, uh, this is done by Humalog, the makers of QuickPen. And it's called an autonomy study protocol. So under healthcare provider direction, patients reported their blood glucose reading and then self-adjusted their pre-meal insulin based on their reading. Patients began mealtime insulin with a single breakfast injection. Injections were administered using Humalog 
And carbohydrate counting is not required to adjust titration. And so what they did then was they got people to adjust their blood sugar to a range of 114 or less. Now, what is 114? Uh, 114 is a hemoglobin A1C of 5.6. And what did they find? They found, good news, patients could be trusted. They could be trusted to titrate their blood sugar to this particular goal. And the issue, of course, here is that people are being trained to self-administer lethal doses to themselves. And so we are seeing here a removal of the middleman, which is the doctor. So patients are now willing and enthusiastic about adjusting their own blood sugars to keep their blood sugars in the lethal range. This is shocking. And so then this, whether you want to call it 59 million or $100 million per diabetic that might benefit, is simply being divided up and excluding the doctor. And so people are absolutely capable of titrating their blood sugar and keeping it in a, um, a lethal range. And here we are. The goal was to keep the hemoglobin A1C less than 7. And they found that fully 48% of patients kept their blood sugar in this lethal range over the course of the study. And people responded very well. And so this is, of course, a success. Because you don't die for cheap. I'm telling you guys, it's not cheap. Uh, in order to die, you got to buy a lot of drugs. In this case, uh, the human lab people are doing this study. But I don't want to single them out because obviously any, any diabetes manufacturer. Oh, and here, another study. This is even better. The person was over 65. Their chances of achieving a hemoglobin A1C level were even higher, 67%. Awesome, awesome, awesome. And the endpoint was? change from hemoglobin A1C baseline, literally, they were able to drop the hemoglobin A1C by a full point, which the Danish show, study showed was associated with the maximum death rate. So there you have it. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. And so, I mean, a lot of people like to blame their doctor, but the truth of the matter is, this was definitely self-administered death. A lot of people like to blame misinformation, but quite frankly, I mean, if I could find it on the internet, why can't you? Well, the truth of the matter is, really, to be honest, these emails are sent to doctors in secret via a site that requires a password. And so, yes, there is an attempt to conceal this from the public. Guess what? Now you know. Now, the other thing is, what is concealed from the public is um, the site that digests and summarizes these things. 
the actual article, uh, the documents, this increased death rate is actually public for anyone uh, to see. And what I can do is I can see if I might be able to send it. I don't know if I can send it to the chat room. I'll send it to the chat room. So those of you who can... Um, You can access the chat room. Can see this um, study. It is absolutely, um, really shocking that in the face of this clear evidence that the hemoglobin A1C being managed in this manner increases mortality, that there would be such a rush by the standard of care to enforce and maintain a hemoglobin A1C level that is clearly known to be deadly. Um, so all I can tell you about that is the death of 880,000 people at the hands of the medical system is not an accident because it's built right into the standard of care. An incompetent doctor can't kill people at nearly the rate that a competent doctor can. And of the 880,000 people who die at the hands of uh, medicine, ninety percent die at the hands of competent doctors doing exactly what they're supposed to follow in the standard of care. So, ready for questions. Let's see what we've got. I see the chat room lighting up here. Let's see. All right, we got a lot of questions. Dr. Daniels, can you talk a little about diabetes testimonials resolving with turpentine sugar? Hmm. Um, with turpentine sugar, what people find is the blood sugars decrease and don't swing so widely. But honestly, um, you know, I've cured people's diabetes without turpentine and sugar. Um, if you follow the turpentine and sugar protocol, your diabetes will be gone long before you get around to the turpentine part. So I don't, you know, turpentine sugar is nice. Yes, it does bring the blood sugar down. No, it does not cure diabetes. Um, you have to do that yourself. Why do diabetes have a slower, diabetics have a slower healing time? How would one overcome slow healing issues? Okay. So diabetics have a slower healing time because they are suffering from profound malnutrition and their immune system does not have the resources it needs to heal. I mean, in a nutshell. And the best way to overcome the slow healing time is to get rid of the diabetes. Well, let's just say you're in a hurry, you can't get rid, of, you know, you you can't get rid of diabetes, or so you think. Um, you know, start by drinking more water. That's that's the big start. <laughs> I just had a relative recently diagnosed with diabetes, and she is so brainwashed and doing what the doctors are telling her to do, I cannot convince her that this is exactly the way they're going to kill her quickly. 
you know, I would just say, you know, help her celebrate her birthdays, the holidays, be nice to her, and, you know, be kind and show your love for her in positive, mutually enjoyable ways for the remaining days that she does have. I mean, I don't think, you know, somebody's committed themselves to um, uh, somebody's committed themselves to living out a Greek tragedy and playing the role of Hamlet. There's not a lot you can do about that. Uh, you know, all you can do is just uh, make sure that you're not Brutus. You know, for those of you who haven't read Hamlet, not familiar with Hamlet, Hamlet is a Greek tragedy where Hamlet the star is murdered by his best friend Brutus. That's the summary. And so in this case, if you're determined to play the role of a star who has the attention of the healthcare industry and is murdered by, of course, your best friend, that would be the healthcare industry that's supposedly helping you, then, like I would say, for somebody who's in a situation of having a friend or relative like that, I would say, just be kind and caring and loving towards them. Uh, you know, it's a role they decide to play. And, you know, I, um, I don't think you can do a whole lot about the performance. It's, it's a conscious decision that they've made. I have a very good friend of our family. And whenever we get together, she announces, I am living with a chronic disease. I am living with diabetes. And then she makes a list of all the concessions she wants are going to make to her because she's living with diabetes. And so, you know, you just have to decide what role you want to play in that person's life. And I would suggest picking a positive, uh, loving role. That's what I'd recommend. <laughs> okay, this person's got it right. Yeah, it's like being on the Titanic. As much as you want to save your family, the only thing you can do is save yourself. And this is absolutely the way you save your family is to save yourself. In other words, you get on a lifeboat and get off the Titanic. And the great thing about this particular Titanic is there's more than enough lifeboats to go around. On the real Titanic, man, when the lifeboats were gone, they were gone. But with this modern medical trap, as you free yourself, as you escape, as people see your good health and see how well you're doing, they're going to say, hey, maybe it's time for me to bail too. And that's really the way to do it, is to simply save yourself, and you will attract quite a bit of attention. I've been watching my spouse fall asleep on the couch after supper for years. Lately, I'm doing it too. Cannot stay awake after I eat. Is this related to blood sugar? Probably not. What's really going on here is when you eat, it takes a tremendous amount of energy and nutrition, basically B vitamins, minerals, antioxidants, to process the meal that you just ate, as well as water. And so if your body is deficient in any of these, um, either water or nutrients, it will literally shut down other functions so that it can engage in the digestion of your food. Because that is the priority, because the way your immune system sees it is something that just came into your body might be poisonous. And it needs to hurry up and process this stuff and it needs to uh, detoxify it, have that liver soak it up and spit it right, at, right out, by golly. Um, so what it does then is it shuts down all of your other functions, and literally you go into sleep mode. And your body then 
continues the job of digestion while you are asleep. So what's the answer to this? The answer is try drinking, this is heresy, water with your meals. Yes, try drinking water with your meals. And this way your body will have enough water to do the digestion and you may find you don't fall asleep. The next thing, if the water doesn't work, is you can try uh, supplements. I would recommend a start with um, B-complex 50 or with trace minerals. Those are usually, those are the most common deficiencies. <laughs> These statistics give me a deer in the headlights feeling. Absolutely. That's right. People are just like deer in the headlights. They are literally mesmerized, stunned by the light. And, you know, then, of course, they're, they are sacrificed. But without treatment, what about diabetic coma? That's a good question. Diabetic coma generally occurs somewhere between um, 900. I've seen a coma not below 1,000. I've never seen a coma, anyone diabetic coma, under a blood sugar of 1,000. Um, I've seen people walking with blood sugars of 900 and something. So it's pretty tough to get a blood sugar that high. You've got to work at it. What usually happens, though, with treatment is people go into a hypoglycemic coma, and that is the most frequent cause of death now. So without treatment, it's very unlikely you would go into a diabetic coma, extremely unlikely, especially if you know that you're diabetic. Most people can easily keep their blood sugar under 500, which, uh, you know, if you keep your blood sugar under 500, you're not going into a coma, not from your diabetes anyway. Does the body's ability to make... To make and regulate blood sugars on its own diminish the longer it's on synthetic insulin therapy? Now, there's a good question. The other question is, what's synthetic insulin anyway? Synthetic insulin is genetically modified insulin. So genetically modified insulin is like anything genetically modified. It kind of clogs up your system. And so, um, but this is, is reversible once you stop using synthetic insulin. So that's not a matter. So does the body's ability to, make, to regulate blood sugars diminish on synthetic insulin therapy? Only to the extent that the insulin, synthetic insulin, like any other synthetic product, may clog the liver. And that can always be reversed just by increasing your bowel movements. You know, you can use that with, use Vitality Capsule for that if you want. Go on over to vitalitycapsules.com. But once you um, drink more water, eat unprocessed foods, chemical-free foods, that, that blood sugar just comes right down. Because there are a lot, there's a lot to regulating your blood sugar besides insulin. Insulin is not your body's primary method of regulating blood sugar. In fact, insulin is a backup method. Your body's primary method for regulating blood sugar is to have water on board so that can dilute the blood sugar down to a level that your body finds to be healthy. The next way of regulating the blood sugar is by you, you having a diet high in fiber, so the sugar is released very slowly into the blood. The next method of regulating the blood sugar is for the liver to absorb the sugar and turn it into glycogen, and then the liver releases it slowly in between meals. Now, does the liver need the pancreas to tell it to make glycogen? Heck no. The P 
pancreas only releases insulin when the liver is behind, when the blood sugar is higher than what it ought to be. So the, the insulin is a backup method for regulating blood sugar. It never occurred to me that blood sugar numbers could be messed with just like cholesterol. <laughs> yeah, yeah. A number is a number is a number. And the importance of the number is the meaning that you attach to it. And people need to um, realize that they have a choice in what meaning they want to attach to these numbers. And so, you know, it's unreasonable to attribute someone else the meaning you attach to a number because actually, you know, especially if you consider yourself to be an adult, that would be someone over the age of 18, over the age of 25 if you're in college. Why would it be the more intelligent kids go to college but are considered minors until they're 25? I leave that to your uh, assessment. So it's unreasonable, I think, for people to blame their doctor for this 25% kill rate among diabetics, especially since, of course, the patients are administering their own insulin. I mean, you've got to decide what you are going to believe, what you want to have happen. <laughs> okay. Dr. Downs, if you're drinking tap water because you can't afford to still reverse osmosis water, are you helping yourself at all, even if you put high mineral sea salt with it. Uh, if you're drinking tap water, I wouldn't even put salt in it because I'm not sure what's in the tap water. It may already have a lot of salt in it. Um, but I would definitely, you know, put out the word for your next birthday present to get you a uh, distiller for 150 bucks. You know, that's what I would say. You you gotta get you gotta get pure water. You just have got to get clean water. There's no two ways about it. Okay, that is it. I think that we're just about at the end of our show. So I hope everybody enjoyed the show and got something out of it. Next week, health gurus who die at their own hands, hoisted on their own petard. That is what we're gonna do. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. <gasps> no, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.